Um, today is a very special morning that we get to ordain George as one of our leaders. Um, and I'd like to read a passage from 1 Timothy that expresses how special of a privilege it really is. Um, not only for George, but for us to have leaders, people who are devoted to supporting and encouraging and being there for us, uh, no matter the cost. So this comes from 1 Timothy 2, 1-7. to Or sorry, 3, 1-7. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop or elder, overseer, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, nor covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice or new convert, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And per the elders, the, the ministry nominating committee, and myself, I can uh, affirm that these are all the case. Um, George is an earnest lover of Jesus, and a lover of his wife and his family, and he's devoted to our, our church, and I, my prayer is that you may be the receive, on the receiving end of Jesus' love through him, uh, that you may be supported uh, by him um, in your, as his time as an elder at our church. Um, guys, uh, come on up, and we'll lay hands on George and pray for the Holy Spirit, and we'll be uh, right here in the middle. Looks like my mic doesn't want to work this morning. I'm going to ask you guys to join me up here because I cannot go down there. Oh, perfect. Perfect. I have George here in the center. Uh, yeah, let's kneel. That's right. I'll make this a short and sweet one, George. Father in heaven, I want to praise you as the king and father of our brother here, George. Thank you for calling him to be an elder and a leader here. Thank you for then providing him the power that will infuse into his heart and his mind to provide a spiritual nurturing and a brotherly love into this church congregation. We pray, God, that you prepare him for the calling you have this year, the duties you would have him fulfill, the people you would have him serve, the ways you want to stretch him and Though it will be uncomfortable, I pray, God, that you would give him a peace in, uh, when he's outside of his comfort zone, searching and seeking after your will. I pray, God, that as a congregation, we may love him. We may give him the same grace that you have given us, patient with his weaknesses and his shortcomings that are common to all people. We pray, Lord, that this congregation would lift him up in prayer, as with all our leaders in all our church ministries. 
that your, our prayers would provide a power in the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, that they may provide and live up to the calling that you've given them over this congregation. May he have a deepening love and relationship with Ruth, Lord, that may shine to the world around them of the love of Jesus in heaven and the, the sacrifice he made for us. And pray, God, that in our elders' team, we may continue to grow in our bond, brotherly bond with him and that he with us, uh, that we'd be a close-knit family of brothers um, serving you ultimately and loving our, your people well. We ask for your mercy over us, God, in our weaknesses. You know we are prone to wander, and so we thank you that your mercy is always available to, to draw us back to you. So in the times where George does fail, I pray, Lord, that your, your, the light of heaven may shine in his mind and illuminate those, those moments of darkness, that your hope and the truth that you have adopted him into your family, that your blood has ransomed him from the condemnation of sin, from the grip of the devil, Lord, that he is always yours, that that may shine in his mind and firm him in you. We thank you, God, that we get to have him here in this church. Lord, we love him. Thank you for loving him. Thank you that we get to receive his love as a brother. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. For scripture reading, as we have read before, it is Philippians 4.19, and Brady is going to come up. All things consist. That means the breath we take, the, the rods and cones in our eyes, the neurons, our sinews, the birds, everything is active and alive in a 24-7 live stream of power and life from God's hand. There was nothing before him, and there's only thing, anything now because in a moment he spoke, and there was. I think this is, uh, it echoes the powerful passage of John 1. He begins, he, re, he frames God for a people who were trying to get to know God. He frames for them all this with his grace. Check this out. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. Nothing was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend or overcome it. Can I get an amen? amen? Sheesh, wow. To think, to think that everything we hope for in this life, everything good comes from the hand of God and is dependent on him. But how many of us, like the people of Jesus say, to whom he spoke, be anxious for nothing, what does worrying add to your life? You know, the birds don't sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father takes care of them. We, like them, can become worried over our temporal needs. Food, clothes, career, relationships. 
we can be worried over things because we think we can't take care of it enough. Like we see our limits and we're like, man, I can't fix my situation. But can you remind yourself in those moments what you need comes from the mouth of God. As Christians, we believe that God is creator and sustainer, which means whatever you need, it's not dependent on you. It's dependent on your working with Jesus. That's what it's dependent on. Nothing was made that was made without him. So if you are with him, he will make in your life all that you need. Everything your soul craves, everything your heart desires, everything your mind mind can be um, enriched by, he will make it in your life when you walk with him. Now we see a world that hasn't walked with him. And so it has become bloated and lopsided with philosophies and addictions and ideas that has left our world exploding. Exploding. There's so much pain. because People are trying to do it on their own. They're trying to make for themselves what they need. When God said, if you walk with me, it, you're going to experience how life has always been. You're going to experience reality for its truest form that is dependent on its creator. You won't have to dance in any imaginations that you can provide everything you need for yourself. You're forcing it. Don't force it. Let the Lord bring it himself. Um, And it's it's in Philippians that our scripture reading was focused on. That the promise is that God will supply all our needs. I, uh, sorry, 419 And Philippians says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. By Christ Jesus. Now I, this text makes me wonder, what does that mean in a world where there's famine? Where innocents die by famine, violence, illness? What does this verse mean that God will supply all our needs? the best I can understand needs to be understood through Paul's experience and the church of Philippi's experience. This church was birthed out of suffering. It's very interesting. Philippi is the place, and you know, many of you know the story of Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas, they, were, they were, received a vision that God wanted them to go to Philippi, in the, 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 which was a cultural center of Macedonia, a colony, and he wanted, God wanted them to preach. Wanted them to teach about God. And so they urgently went. And they meet this young girl who's possessed by a demon. And who had been making so much money, basically as a soothsayer, someone who connects with the spirits, so much money for her bosses, that she actually, she was a primary force in cultivating a trust in idols. Like the whole culture, the whole society, the colony, was more anchored in idolatry because of these demonic visions and speakings that she had. But one day Paul and Silas come by, and she starts following them, saying, these are the servants of the Most High, God, listen to them. But they wouldn't have it, because they, they, they did not follow Satan, and if she was going to be encouraging people to talk, listen to them, essentially, she's saying, hey, I'm with them, they're with me, and Listen to them, listen to me, it's the same. And so they turn around, and they rebuke the demon in her, and it obeys and it leaves. 
and she's left with peace and calm and in her right mind. Now, how happy do you think that made her bosses? Oh, no. They grumbled. They stamped their feet. They had an adult tantrum. And they go to the, the city leaders and said, hey, these guys are disrupting the economy of our entire society. We need to do something about it. So the entire town gets involved in crowds around them, and they get taken off to jail. They get tortured severely, put in chains, and thrown in prison. And one shift of a jailer, this jailer hears something odd, phenomenal. He's walking around the jail, looking at the inmates, glaring at them, them glaring at him. He's just walking, he's checking around, and he finally sits down just to ponder life, I guess. And what he hears is groans and moans and shrieks and yells. This is a scary place, it's an ugly place, a place of pain and suffering. But also in the air, he hears the sweet sound of singing. And he pauses and he says, am I going crazy? Where, why is there singing in here? And he goes to Paul and Silas's prison cell to see their bleeding wounds, swollen red, tightly cuffed, but to see them smiling and singing praise to God, doxology in the dungeon. That would have been a good sermon title. <laughs> and he's moved. He's moved. And confused. So he goes back and sits down. He actually ends up falling asleep to the music. It's so beautiful. And then he's woken by an earthquake that breaks the chains and gates of the soldiers. And he runs out in the smoke and the dust. And he's thinking everybody has escaped. He pulls out his sword, ready to take his life, because taking his life would be much easier than Rome dealing with him. But just then, Paul says, hey, stop. We're still here. Don't do that. Don't do that. And they have a moment where Paul and Silas get to preach. They get to tell this man of God, and he's all ears, because this was life and death for him. Have you ever been in a life and death situation and suddenly your senses are on overload? Maybe you, were, you hit black ice or you nearly stepped off a, a ledge or um, someone nearly dropped hot coffee on your lap in the plane. I don't know. Um, but he was all ears. And he would eventually take Paul and Silas back to his home, clean up their wounds, and... Uh, his family's life was changed by the gospel. Then they came back to the prison, and those uh, people who got on his case, on the, Paul and Silas's case for, for uh, rece freeing that young lady said, oh no, hey, I think these guys are actually good guys. We need to let them go. We should do it privately. And Paul and Silas say, no. Which I think is such a edgy, like cool response. You're just like, nah, I'm not going to go privately. You brought us in here in public, man. Oh, by the way, we're Roman citizens, which made them shake in their boots because you're not allowed to torture a Roman citizen, but they got the worst of it. 
I said, sir, all that to say that it was in Philippi that Paul preached a message, was tortured and suffered for it, had peace and praise, genuine peace and praise in, in the darkest dungeon and went out to continue preaching in Philippi. And that is the birthplace of this church. This body of believers were inspired by his, his earnestness, his devotion, and they would end up going through their own persecution as well. Philippians, he, he tells them to, to be faithful. He says in chapter 3, sorry, chapter 2, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict in which you saw in me, and now here is in me. In other words, hey, you guys saw what I went through. You know it will come. Your privilege isn't just to believe and have faith and peace in God, but your privilege is to, if they're suffering along the way of doing God's work of life and peace and hope giving, will you do it? Will you go forward anyways as a messenger? And they had said yes. They said we will do it. If you could do it, Paul, if Jesus himself could do it, we can do it too. And so there was this beautiful bond between Paul and the church in Philippi. And the famous verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is actually set in a context, I never noticed this before, set in a context that expresses this beautiful bond Paul had with this church. All throughout this chapter, he's saying, I love you guys. Like, my heart is for you guys. I am so, I'm rejoicing in your growth. Like, you're my people. And then we come to this passage of verses 10 to 20. And Paul just takes a moment to rejoice in the church's support of him. Because no one had supported him for a time, and Philippi was the only church. It's not because other churches were selfish or whatever. We don't know. But Philippi opened an account, a credit and a debit for him. And so verse 10 reads... But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, greatly. The Greek word is mega, megalos, great. That now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Now this phrase, this phrase, uh, that your care for me has flourished again, in the Greek sounds a little more poetic actually. This is how it sounds in the Greek. Oops, wrong set of notes. Here we go. This is how it sounds in the Greek. You caused your thinking of me to bloom afresh. You caused your thinking of me to bloom afresh. It had been a long time since they saw him. He wasn't there. But they would think of him. He was in their hearts. This great fatherly, brotherly man who suffered for Jesus with a smile on his face and a smile on his heart. And so they caused their thinking of him to now bloom afresh by sending him support. Let's keep reading. What kind of support is this talking about? We're going to kind of jump around a little bit in this 10 verses because Paul, as one commentator says, tries to clear his name with anxious, anxiety, and nervousness. I think I messed up that quote. 
But he'll say, thank you for helping me, but it's not because I needed so much. It's because of what you did for God. It's because God was pleased. And so I'm just going to read the verses that uh, relate to what the Philippians did. So we have verse 10, then we come to verse 14 to 16. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. I'll pause there. Verse 14, that you shared in my distress. That's called empathy. Sympathy is just feeling bad for someone, but empathy is feeling what they feel. In other words, they were bound so much with him, like, for him to be hurt is like them being hurt. For him to be hurt, it's like them being hurt. So he commends their empathy for him. Verse 15, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning... uh, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. In other words, Paul's recalling that only this church financially supported and recognized him. They acknowledged his existence, his ministry, his calling after he had left them. He was the only one. Now, he had already visited the Thessalonians and Berea. Um, before Philip, the Philippi, he had visited Antioch. And none of these churches provided support. He even visited the Corinthians, and the Corinthians were actually really irritated because uh, Paul goes and tells them about the people who supported him. It's in 2 Corinthians 9.8. I kind of chuckle at this. 2 Corinthians 9.8. He says, And as God is able to make And as God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. No, that's actually not the passage I had for you. Let's see. You know, that one will have to be for another time. Needless to say, he's saying, hey, guys, Don't be upset that I'm telling you other people supported me so I could freely work for you. I didn't want to burden you. But I'm not saying this to like, because I don't love you. I do love you guys. But I'm not going to, he says, I'm not going to stop boasting about the faithfulness of these other believers. And that's a very interesting kind of background to me, at least. So we come to verse 16, where in 16, they even sent support when he was abroad with another church. Verse 16. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again, or that's in Greek, once and twice, for my necessities. Pause. Now, why didn't Thessalonica support him? Well, I think they were in a really tough spot themselves. Because in uh, Thessalonians, he says, I worked night and day so that I wouldn't be a burden to you guys and I could just bring Christ to you. In other words, although in in Greece... Manual labor was looked down upon. He worked in manual labor night and day to support his own needs so they wouldn't have to support them. What a man. (laughs) What an amazing person. Um, And uh, from Acts, I believe it is, we know that he was a tent maker. He just took whatever he could, wherever he went, found a job, started working. He's a working man. Now we close with 19 here. Well, like, I guess actually a bit of 18. Indeed, I have all in abound. I'm full. 
having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And then our scripture reading, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. All your needs. All your needs will be met. So this famous passage of Philippians 4.13 is actually set. Paul's just trying to actually say thank you, guys. And he's trying to say thank you. It's not about that you made me more comfortable. It's that God is delighted and pleased with how much love you're giving and the love you're pouring out. Let's read what Paul said now as he tries to kind of clear things up and being polite. In verse 11, he clarifies that this joy is not that the church helped him not be in lack. But why? He says, I'm content either way. Verse 11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. And that phrase, not that I speak in regard to need, it actually has the nuance of being behind being late, maybe being behind in the payment, being late to the party, <laughs> you know, you're missing things. He's not saying, I thank you guys. He's saying, I thank you guys, but I'm not thanking you because I was so late in taking care of my needs and I just was at a loss. No, because I'm content regardless, guys, which they would be like, well, yeah, you are, Paul. We know you were tortured and put in a dungeon and you still sang praises and sang the loudest in our church services. <laughs> Let me come to 12, where he gives some categories in which he learned to be content. Categories of maybe ego, hunger, comfort. It reads in verse 12, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I think that's really interesting. Because um, some of the words here, to be humbled, gives the idea in the Greek of to overflow. So there's been times where he was just overflowing with everything he needed. But he also learned to be humbled, to have just enough. To be filled is, uh, comes from the, the Greek word comes from hay or grass. And so it gives this picture of an animal becoming fattened. So he says, I know how to be like an animal, not like an animal, but... Be filled and have all that I need. Like the farmer who just keeps bringing out the hay, you know. It just kept, there were times where it just kept coming and life was easy and simple. And then there were times where we didn't have what we needed. We didn't have, you know, we were lacking. And to suffer need. Which is kind of interesting that that's the phrase he would use. Both, I learned to both abound and suffer need, when in verse 19 he says, my God will supply all your needs. But sorry, you're going to suffer need at times. So what does that verse mean then? What could it possibly mean? Well, verse 13 gives some idea. Here Paul is basically saying, I have such great strength so long as Jesus keeps on putting power in me. And that's where we get the verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And um, there's a phrase where he, he's basically saying, you know, I thought, I've, he said I learned, right? He's essentially taking 
he, he's essentially taking all of his life experience as a single unit and thinking, what did I learn? You know, as a young man, as an older man, middle-aged man, I learned to be content. So interesting. He learned to be content. Out of all the things we want to learn in this world today that's full of knowledge, you can buy any kind of course, you can learn quantum physics for free from Harvard, or maybe, maybe it was engineering. I don't know, you can learn about just about anything. Um, he learned contentment. And I, I'm blanking on which passage it is, but uh, actually I think it's 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, where he says, contentment is godliness. Yeah, godliness with contentment is great gain. It's great gain. Now, what's interesting here is what Paul uses is a very unchristian word. Very unchristian. He uses a word that is, of, is used by the pagans in their ethics. And the Greek word is autarkes. Autarkes. Um, which essentially means self-sufficient, self-sufficient. Now, this was used by specifically the Stoics. Has anyone heard of the Stoics? Anyone know some famous Stoics? Yeah. Um, actually, in college, I was kind of intrigued by their philosophy that was a, a means of dealing with adversity, so it was kind of inspiring when I'd do my workouts with my buddies because um, they were pretty kind of wrecked me. But the Stoic philosophy was like, disassociate from your pain it's just information just keep going well this was one of the stoics favorite word autarkes it is essentially a state of mind in which a man was absolutely and entirely independent of all things and of all people a state in which a man had taught himself to need nothing and to need no one and there were three steps to this three means of accomplishing this state of mind one to eliminate desire, two, to eliminate emotion, and three, to be deliberate. Now, number one, eliminating desire actually is, this, is the same principle in Buddhism, interestingly enough. Their idea was, if you want to make a man happy, add not to his possessions, but take away from his desires. And it's kind of a proud, profound thing, isn't it? Socrates is known for saying, he that is content with least, for autarche is nature's wealth. This self-sufficiency, this lack of not needing anyone or anything, that is true wealth by nature's way, is what he's saying. They're saying. Now the second way was to eliminate your emotions. Basically, till he did not care. You have to do this till a person does not care what happens either to himself or anyone else. They would teach basically, start with a jar or a cup. If it breaks, say to yourself, I don't care. And if maybe one of your animals or your pets goes ill and is injured, say, I don't care. And then eventually, maybe one of your loved ones is ill, maybe even dies. In that moment, you say, I don't care. If you suffer yourself, say, I don't care. And it's through eliminating that emotional reaction of sadness and pain and disappointment and frustration and shame that they say you're able to find true peace. You've got to eliminate emotions. 
It's like, that's the solution? Okay. The third thing was to be deliberate. It was to be done in deliberate act of will, which saw in everything the will of God. They essentially were thinking, everything that happens, for good or bad, or evil or good, came from him. So just accept it, roll with it. You can't fight it. It's going to happen no matter what. You have no power. You don't hold on to anything. You don't hold on to anyone. So just let it happen. And they say that that way of taking life, which um, that is the way to have peace. But how different it is from Paul's religion. Didn't Paul go through deep suffering? We discussed it earlier. He was beaten nearly to death and cast outside a city. And so there's some clear differences. One commentator says, The Stoics made of the heart a desert and called it peace. That was their solution. But what made, where Stoicism failed and died, essentially. Now it's still, there are plenty of people who follow Stoicism today, but it doesn't have the same power it did then. Christianity succeeded because it was love rooted in life and caring. Whereas Stoics, they rooted love out of life and forbid caring. Because if you cared, your heart's going to get torn up. You're always going to be stressed and sad. Don't let your heart feel a single thing. Don't let it feel a single thing. So where the Stoic would say, I will learn by deliberate act of my will to be this way. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me who infuses me with his strength, I will be able to endure and cope with what I face. Where the Stoics said that contentment was coming, would come from human achievement through that deliberate, forcing, acting will, Paul says contentment's a divine gift. Godliness with contentment is great gain. It's a divine gift. Where the Stoics said, be self-sufficient, Paul says, be God-sufficient. Where Stoicism failed because it was inhumane, Christianity succeeded because it was rooted in the divine, which was full of compassion and love. So Paul learned in any situation that if he had Jesus, he had what he needed. Come what may. Come what may. The man who walks with Christ and lives in Christ can cope with anything. Anything. Until we see some of the most courageous acts in human history done by believers. Done against all odds. I think of William Wilberforce fighting against the slave trade. Fighting against all odds. Fighting with his reputation. And was victorious after years. I think of missionaries and Christian martyrs who went to distant lands and who stood to their faith when everyone said, you're crazy, give it up. Go, just go have a peaceful life and leave it all behind because it's too much to bear. They saw beyond to things that were unseen. They looked beyond this world and it gave them faith and hope. It gave them faith and hope. Um... 
this, uh, this contentment is a gift, again. It's a gift. And when we receive this gift, it allows us to give something. Culture says you need more, right? Part of us, we just want, some, want more. We need more of this, we need more of that. But the first starting point needs to be is, I have everything I need. The secret to contentment is actually believing when you follow Jesus, he's provided all things. Do you have what you need today? Most of you probably had a meal recently, slept in your own bed. You didn't have to worry about intruders breaking in or bombs falling around you. You have Most of you have jobs. And if you don't have a job, the Lord has supplied your need. I think the testimonies we heard this morning are quite profound in regard to this context. Our own church family praying for different things, for God's will and miraculous intervention, and seeing it didn't happen the way they prayed for, but that the Lord still provided. That the Lord proved faithful, never disappointing. And so we today are invited into this contentment as believers. The natural state of a believer is to be content. It's not to have thrill and euphoria. It's not to be in the dumps, in sorrow and grief over what's happening in the world, although we do follow in Christ's footsteps as men and women of sorrow, as it says in Isaiah 53. But we're invited into contentment to value the gifts of heaven that are limitless, and Paul ends with doxology. Now to our Lord, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. He ends with such praise over what God has done in them. He sings, he praises, he writes down a doxology. I like what one commentator says. No gift ever made any man poorer. He makes himself richer, for his own gift opens to him the gifts and riches of God. And I think this is really crucial to our spiritual health. Giving. Giving, giving, giving. With a cheerful spirit. Not begrudgingly. But God says, I love a cheerful giver. And uh, one context I'd like to encourage us in um, is for the married folk. Now, I know, I'm not married. I know. But I brought a book, another show and tells, by someone who has been married. Uh, this man actually recently passed this year. His, name's, his name was Pastor Timothy Keller. Um, he's a Presbyterian pastor and profound author, prolific, powerful, godly man, loved by many. And he wrote this book called The Meaning of Marriage. I, if you're single, if you're not interested in married, if you're engaged, dating, married, check this book out. You will walk away with blessings. He points out that our spiritual health depends on on selflessness. When we get full of self, things die. Because we are full of death. The Lord is full of life. So we need to be full of his will and his aspirations and his desires. And so he says something really interesting about marriage. Paul likens marriage to the health of your body. As we have said, it must be the most fundamental human relationship of your life. When you marry, you've gotten into something that was invented by God. And if you determine to run your marriage your way, you're in for a lot of trouble because marriage is God's institution. He built it to be the primary relationship in your life. Marriage isn't, um, if you think that marriage is going to be a sidebar to your great career or ministry or hobby, that is going to come second or third in your, 
that marriage is going to come second or third in your life, that your spouse had better get used to it, watch out. Marriage isn't built that way. Once you're married, your marriage has to take priority. The reason it must have priority, this is the most profound part to me. Don't miss this. The reason it must have priority is because of the power of marriage. Now, I'll be, I'll be bringing this around to Christ in a moment, back to our passage in Philippians. Just track with me. Because of the power of marriage. Marriage has the power to set the course of your life as a whole. If your marriage is strong, even if all the circumstances in your life around you are filled with trouble and weakness, it won't matter. You will be able to move out into the world in strength. However, if your marriage is weak, even if all the circumstances in your life around you are marked by success and strength, they won't matter. You will move out into the world in weakness. Marriage has that kind of power. The power to set the course of your whole life. It has that power because it was instituted by God. And because it has that unequaled power, it must have unequaled supreme priority in your life. And so, he goes on to also make some interesting statements, powerful statements, that as Jesus said, as a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, he's saying, Jesus is saying, in the same amount of respect and honor you desire to give your parents in Eastern society, that was huge. Kind of not like Western society nowadays. Everyone's expected to leave their family. It's kind of normal um, and in no sanctimonious way. But he said, that's a big deal. And to then take that same honor and give all of it, all that grace, all that desire to respect to your spouse, just give it freely. And so now that you become one, one unit, you make decisions differently, you make them as one. You choose where to put your money, you choose your careers, you choose your, where you're going to move, you do it as one. Because now you're this new thing. It's a new thing has been created. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Your marriage was made by God. And as Colossians says, everything was made through him, for him, and by him. Your marriage is for Jesus. And your marriage sustained through Jesus. To do it his way. So I just close. Uh, this includes boundaries, though, because although love must be unconditional, access is conditional. Love is limitless, but access is not limitless. There's abuse in a relationship, there must be separation. There are boundaries in a loving, Christ like relationship. And so I leave you with this be united with Christ, and your joy will be full. Depend on him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you're so good. Give us contentment this Sabbath. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's all stand on the promises of God, number 518. 518. Standing on the promises of Christ my King, through eternal ages let his praises ring. Glory in the highest I will shout and sing. Standing on the promises of God. I wasn't here. Standing, standing.
Vespers. Yeah. Have a great Sabbath. Thank you. I'll try. Hey, 